Sutra 40 The Sky Burial and the Eleventh Bhumi Complete Radiance A new life. Wouldn't that be a dream? Once I heard that after death, we're born again, I jumped out of my seat to see what it all means. Rebirth! Are you sure? Yep. But first, we've got to purify all that is impure. And after that, We'll get your soul in a new body to call home, said Mr. Kismet. Home. Oh, I feel like it's been so long since I've been home. Omani me home, said Forgiveness. Om is totality. It's all that is impure and all that is pure. Mani is the jewel, that selfless service that allows us to move beyond fear. Pedme is the lotus, or the wisdom of the heart, and home is when the jewel and the lotus are interwoven together. And so, Omani Pedme Home is where we'll start. Well, I just can't wait to get home. But where is it? Where do we go? First, we must purify, release, and let go. Before you pick out a new body and life, we must come into contact with the ethereal, said Mr. Kismet. The ethereal? Yes. Time for your sky burial, said Forgiveness. It was all so fascinating and new. I felt like a little kid, and the excitement built so high, I didn't know how to keep myself together or what to do. I was jumping up and down, and so I looked at my own soul and screamed, I love you! Come on, come on, and don't forget your snake. Just like the seasons, everything changes in a natural rhythm. You're going to do great said Mr. Kismet. My snake. And there I saw it. It had been coming up around my spine. There a hooded cobra wrapped itself around my neck right on time. What a day! Oh my goodness! Hip hip hooray! And so I followed the boomies, Mr. Kismet and Forgiveness, for about an hour walk. The directions had us turn left at the rubbish dump, and at that point we saw fire upon a hill. That's our goal. This was the countryside, early in the morning, where we passed peasants going into Lhasa on foot or in small donkey carts. They were carrying sacks of grain, hay, vegetables, and other goods for the market. We climbed a small rocky plateau where the fire was burning. This was the burial site, a stubby patch of ground on top of a rocky hill at the base of a bare mountain looking like a wrinkled old elephant's hide. Five Tibetan men and a boy, about ten, were seated around the fire, drinking tea, talking and joking. They wore ordinary work clothes and smiled and then motioned for us to sit. Nearby there was the altar, which was a large flat rock with bowl-like depressions. It was separated from where the Tibetans sat by a shallow gully, strewn with bits of discarded clothing and hanks of hair. There we sat by the edge of the rock gully which faced the altar. Forgiveness motioned towards the mountains. I look up. Neat rows of silent birds were perched on the ledges around Kailash. These are vultures. The colors blend so perfectly with the mountains that at first they are hard to see. Ravens swoop in and out of the gully and gather in the black patches on the altar rock. The rising sun 
turns a nearby card gray and dull browns of the mountains to patches of pale gold and dusty pinks. Now it became pleasantly warm. In the past, some have jeered at the burial procedure, proclaiming it's barbaric, whispered Mr. Kismet. Once the rising sun touched the altar rock, the Tibetans signal that the burial will begin. Then for the first time, I noticed that a white bundle of cloth had been covering something up upon the cart. Now they untie the bundle. It was a man, naked, except for a fisherman's robe of sorts, with two horseshoe crabs on the shoulders. He's young, with brown hair. Oh my goodness, Mr. Kismet and forgiveness! That's me! That's my body! And so you see, said forgiveness. The Tibetan man in white drags the body over the rock and lays it face down in the center. He pulls off the jacket from the body and flings it into the gully. He yanks a large knife from his belt and with surgical precision cuts a slit down the spine. Starting from the shoulder blades, he strips the flesh away down the left side of the body's back, cutting the symbol of eternity. Once this is done, he hacks off the left arm with a knife. The severed arm is tossed to the young boy, who's squatting on his haunches, and pounds it to a pulp with something that looks like the back of an axe, using one of the depressions in the rock as a container. It's hard work for the boy, as he grunts and groans while he works. The man in white continues to hack the left side of the body, panting loudly, like someone chopping wood. The two men, also squatting, are thrown flesh and bones, which they too pound in the bowl-like depressions of the stone. A mixture of barley flour, tea, and yak butter is added to the flesh and bones to make a paste. Everything happens quickly. The men work with skill, pausing only to sharpen their axes or for a short cigarette break. So engrossed am I by their expertise, I almost forgot what they were doing. Once the left side was finished, the right side of the body begins. The flesh is sliced efficiently from the ribs. The man's white coat becomes splattered with blood as he severs the limbs, detaching them from the rest of the body with the bloodied white cloth. Blow by blow, I could see all the shots that had ever been taken at me, all the offenses waged, all the attacks, be it verbal, mental, and physical, that anyone had ever thrown at me as the butcher ripped through my flesh and bones. By now, it looks like a butcher shop, bloody with tattered flesh and strewn limbs. I had to turn away many times, unable to watch, then turn back, unable to not watch. Some vultures fly off the mountains and begin circling the altar rock, gliding over our heads. The butcher continues working with what remains of the body, and before long, he pulls out the heart. Holding it up, he shouts something to the Tibetans by the fire. They nod. The work becomes easier now, and once the head is cut with a single neat blow, the severed head is held up. He picks up a stone, says a prayer, holding it overhead, then smashes the skull twice as the vultures circle closer. An old monk, dressed in crimson and saffron robes, appears close to us. Facing the rock, he says a prayer with his hands held together and prostrates before the rock. At this point, the butcher faces the mountain and turning to the vulture calls out, Cho! Tatsu! And at that signal, 
about a dozen vultures, leave them out in perch, and swoop onto the flesh as they gather around him. They are huge, beautiful birds with white necks and legs, and speckled tan and white bodies. Their wings flutter and spread to reveal white undersides and dark brown tips. Some are so close that we can see their bright blue eyes. The vultures wait with restraint as the work continues. The young boy bundles the chopped organs into a cloth. Several vultures, unable to maintain discipline, try to steal bits of flesh from the boy while the butcher chases them off the rock as if punishing them for bad behavior. When he is finished, the boy carries the bundle off the rock. The two men leave with him. Then the butcher faces the mountain ledges, raises his arms to the vultures, and addresses them in a shrill, sing-song voice. Tria! Soya! Tria! Suddenly hundreds of vultures fill the sky, hover in the quivering clouds above our heads, their wings beating, and descend on the rock, completely covering it. As the vultures vie for space, many ravens nervously cling to the edges. The butcher serves the birds with flesh, bones, and the rest. Now the ravens join the feast as they scramble to the outer edges. By the end of it, nothing is left. The birds finish eating, but do not leave the rock, and I wonder why they linger. The answer comes quickly. The bundle of organs is returned to the rock, and they devour every last bite. Finally, the feast is over. The vultures take to the sky, bearing the deceased with them, upwards to the heavens. The rock is empty. The butcher sits with the other Tibetans around the fire in an animated discussion as tea is served. There is no sign of mourning, no tears, no wailing, no prayers. Attending a sky burial for a Tibetan must be the equivalent of going to the morgue for a Westerner. As I sit, too stunned to move, this has been the strangest and most bizarre thing I have ever witnessed. Powerful images rage through me. What amazes me is that in spite of the horrific nature of what I have just seen, I feel no revulsion. One reason must be the inevitable distancing oneself from the intensity and nearness of the experience. But more important is a feeling that the sky burial fits in with the isolation and strangeness of the setting. Somehow, in that alien environment, it all makes sense. I am the last one to leave. When I finally leave the stone altar and the birds, I see that Mr. Kismet, the Boomies, and Forgiveness are waiting for me. I have no words. I am silent. I am in shock. And so Forgiveness speaks. Having gone through the ten Boomies and the first four paths, you finally reach the fifth path, the path of no more learning. The fifth path is into Buddhahood. It is the level of breaking through the vague and nearsighted vision of the tenth Boomi guardian. At this stage, the guardian of the tenth Boomi decides to give up the aesthetic approach to life and development. You begin to let go of your nearsightedness, the punishment of your body, and the restrictions of your emotions. The eleventh Boomi means always luminous, or complete radiance. The eleventh Boomi is the equivalent of Buddhahood. On the tantric level, the higher levels of spiritual achievement and further aspects of Buddhahood are described. But at this point, we are just touching the eleventh Boomi. On the 10th Bhumi, you are still a journeyer. You were inspired to sit and to practice, but you have not settled down. 
you were still maintaining your traveler's approach. Now comes the birth of enlightenment, said Mr. Kismet. In the past, the enlightenment flash of the 11th Bumi does not take place by acting, but by sitting. Previously, you may have focused on actions, on working with sentient beings, and developing a compassionate attitude, and so forth. But for Gautama Buddha, when the actual time of the birth of enlightenment takes place, he just decided to sit. The point at which enlightenment occurs is not so much while you are sitting as a discipline, but when you begin to sit for relaxation. For the young Buddha, who just became Buddha that morning, it was a shock. So much was cut through, and so many changes took place in him as he discovered his new abilities and existence and being. Gautama Buddha was completely amazed at this achievement. After such struggle and effort, he was amazed to find himself enlightened one morning. He then spent seven weeks thinking about the best way to proceed from that day onward. Maybe he thought about how he would communicate with other people, how he could explain his experience. Maybe he was wondering how to show that it is workable and that people could understand it. Or maybe he was thinking that he should just retire and resign from the whole thing. He spent a week walking up and down the Nairajana River and another week gazing at the sight of his enlightenment, said Mr. Kismet. Enlightenment is such a shock. It is not a shock of the present, but a shock of the past. Somehow, after so much expectation, suddenly nothing happens and everything is right there in your hands. Suddenly, you become sovereign, a king or queen, a universal monarch. The question of how to proceed from that day onward seems to be very challenging. It is said that there's only going to be one Buddha in each kalpa, but that raises a lot of questions. Does that mean that you could never become a Buddha and never attain enlightenment? How about the one lifetime attainment of Buddhahood in tantric discipline? How about the sudden enlightenment of the Bodhisattva path? It is also said that in the reign of one Buddha, there cannot be a second Buddha. In our era, Shakyamuni became the Buddha without becoming a Buddhist. He made his whole journey and attained enlightenment with no label or discipline. There may be millions of Buddhas after that, but they are Buddhist Buddhas who follow the path he taught. It was Gautama Buddha who proclaimed the truth no one else. He was the copyright, so to speak. But many Buddhas have been churned out from the teachings, said forgiveness. And so comes indestructible meditation. Generally, there is so much tension and pressure in one state of being. You have a sense of working hard and taking a journey. Finally, you give up. You don't exactly give up, but you begin to relax. That is when the attainment of enlightenment takes place. The attainment is called Vajrapama Samadhi, or Vajra-like Samadhi. Vajra means indestructible, and Samadhi is the spiritual absorption or meditative state. In this case, it is not a practice, but a basic state of mind that is turned into a meditative state forever. The achievement of enlightenment is characterized as knowing and seeing. Knowing does not mean becoming a great scholar or a person who knows facts and figures. It means having a fundamental understanding of the world we live in, its basic principles, and how it functions psychologically. Seeing means knowing how to operate, or how to relate with that knowledge. You are able to see completely and fully. 
Those are the two characteristics of the enlightened state of mind. You know and you see. As a result of the Vajra-like Samadhi, you are fully aware in relating with students or your own behavior. In the earlier Bhumis, you may have picked up the habit of trying to imitate Buddha-like behavior. Because it is an imitation rather than a real expression, that approach is somewhat distorted. It is a copy rather than the original. And at this stage, copying from the original has become an obstacle one has to overcome. You may have adopted an ethical or moralistic approach at the beginning as a means to develop high spiritual levels. But in the end, the ethical moralities of the Bodhisattva's discipline becomes obstacles to becoming enlightened. Concerns about how to handle your life, how to handle your emotions, how to be a perfect Bodhisattva on the path becomes a problem. Although you have achieved the necessary discipline of spontaneity, you realize that the means themselves become a hang-up. The attainment of Vajra-like Samadhi, or indestructible meditation, overcomes the only remaining obstacle to the attainment of enlightenment, which is the hesitation and mannerism of concerns about ethics. Vajra-like Samadhi is the way to cut through the final deception, the final layer of hesitation based on tradition and belief. In other words, the Bodhisattva or guardian attains the final realization of enlightenment by cutting through the hesitations arising from their own discipline. There are four qualities of Vajra-like Samadhi. Toughness, stability, one flavor, and all-pervasiveness. The first quality of toughness means that Vajra-like Samadhi never surrenders. There is no confusion, veil, or obstacle that can overpower it. That quality of toughness is symbolized by the Vajra scepter held by King Indra to defeat the Asuras, or jealous idols. That is seen as the mythical battle between God and the Lord of Death and his army of jealous idols. The Vajra is a weapon of Indra and is a powerful symbol of indestructibility. The term Vajra also refers to a ritual instrument used in tantric ritual practices. According to Hindu myth, this Vajra was made from a half-human, half-saint, or Rishi, who meditated in a cave on Mount Kailash, which could be called Mount Meru or Mount Zion. When he passed away and achieved oneness with God, his body became the essence of adamantine. All his bones became super diamond, the most precious stone one could ever find in all the realms of the world, and completely indestructible. Indra discovered this material, and he made a weapon out of it, and the weapon and material itself are both called Vajra. Traditionally, Vajra has five points, but Indra made a Vajra with 100 points as a weapon to destroy the Asuras, or jealous idols. In creating such a powerful weapon, he made three promises. First, he would never use it unless necessary. Second, once he decided to use it, the Vajra would fulfill its purpose and destroy the enemy. Third, having destroyed the enemy, the Vajra would return to its owner's hand. The Vajra was made in such a way that it closed its points when it was held by its owner, but when it was invoked as the destroyer of the enemy, when Indra held it and waved it and let it go, the Vajra would spring out all its points, destroy the enemy, and come back. The Vajra is powerful not only because it is made from extraordinary material, but also due to the spiritual power and energy of the meditator.
It represents the idea of an independent intelligence that destroys confusion and returns to you. Buddhists have taken up that symbol of the Vajra as a symbol of indestructibility. It has powerful meaning, especially in the Vajrayana, which is named after that particular symbol. The second quality of the Vajra-like Samadhi is stability. Vajra-like Samadhi is unmoved by the wind of thoughts. There may be thoughts, but they are no longer confused thoughts. Therefore, they do not move as the ordinary wind moves. They just persist. The third quality of Vajra-like Samadhi is one flavor. In this case, one flavor means that without confused thoughts, the mental approach becomes very direct and simple, highly open and spacious. In the style of the five wisdoms, all the five families of wisdom have one flavor, which is the awakened quality. Fourth, Vajra-like Samadhi is all-pervasive. At this level of spiritual achievement, you develop an enormous ability to comprehend all that is knowable, anything that is subject to confusion or clarity, said Mr. Kismet. That brings us to the three kayas. Enlightenment means that you are not here and you are not there. Therefore, you have achieved an understanding of something. You can call it consciousness, if you like, but it is not consciousness as a reference point. It is just being. That being manifests as the three kayas, Dharmakaya, Sambhogakaya, and Nirmanakaya. At this point, we could say that a Buddha actually sees their own world, or the world in general, the entire world, from a non-reference point of view. They see the world can exist without a reference point, that reference points are no longer applicable. When you possess such an enlightened view, you attain the Dharmakaya, the body of non-reference point. Dharma means the highest norm of the universe, which is a non-reference point. Kaya means form or body, and it refers to the achievement of that particular experience. So Dharmakaya means Dharma body. Dharmakaya has no categories. Dharmakaya is simply being awake. It is the first achievement of a Buddha, the first glimpse of Vajra-like Samadhi. Vajra-like Samadhi means cutting through with a Vajra blade or diamond sword. It means to cut through everything completely and thoroughly. It goes beyond the level of a 10th Bhumi Bodhisattva's vague vision of perfection. On the 11th Bhumi, you achieve the fullest cutting through. You cut through psychological and spiritual materialism, and you cut through the notion of perfectionism as well. You are able to see this and that as one. At the same time, there is also the clarity that this does exist and that does exist. However, their existence does not serve as a reference point, but more as the working basis for skillful means. The Dharmakaya is referred to as a non-physical body, and the remaining two Kayas, the Sambhogakaya and Nirmanakaya, are known as physical bodies. The Dharmakaya does not have any background or connection to how, but only to what is. Only after that do you begin to have how and why and when to conduct activities. With Sambhogakaya and Nirmanakaya, you begin to relate with the world and with conduct. Having achieved the first glimpse of enlightenment and attained the Dharmakaya state, a Buddha would also experience something beyond that, a sense of vow, promise, and concern. Having gone through the constant struggle and discipline of practicing the Bodhisattva's work of compassion, this compassion 
brings the very predictable world of the Sambhogakaya Buddha. This means the body of complete joy. The Sambhogakaya is beyond any kind of inhibition. There is a freedom to relate with whatever you have understood. Whatever you feel can be communicated or taught. When suddenly, the bottom of the barrel of the world drops out and you cannot hold on to anything. It is very shocking. In fact, it is remarkable that the Sakyamuni Buddha took it so very lightly. However, he did spend time recuperating from the hard work of the past ten Bhumis, partly spacing out in the Dharmakaya and partly planning the next move. After the attainment of enlightenment, it took Gautama Buddha seven weeks to finally grow confidence to articulate what he had experienced. But there is a need for articulation. Once you are a Buddha, you have to say something to the world. You have to do something. You have to proclaim. It is a process of growth. Having removed your inhibition, what are you going to do? You can't just say, come look at me. You have to be very skillful, particularly if you proclaim yourself as an enlightened person, for then you have a heavier burden. It is hard to present yourself to the world. So at the Sambhogakaya level, it is very important work with what are known as the five ways of teaching. First, you choose a particular place to teach. Second, you know who you are as a teacher. Third, you know what you are going to teach. Fourth, you know what kind of audience you have. And fifth, you know what time of day you are going to teach. So, the Sambhogakaya involves a sense of relationship. You know the place, you know what kind of crowd you are going to get, and you know what you are going to say. You do not just want to proclaim yourself, you want to proclaim the Dharma, something other than yourself. Since you have no fear, you seem to know everything in the very highest sense. Fearlessness equals learnedness. You can churn out information and you know how to handle things. The last Kaya is the Nirmanakaya, the Buddha who actually takes form as a human individual. Nirmanakaya Buddhas are living people who relate with their students. They eat with them, sleep with them in the same jungle, and share their life with them. That is their function. Nirmaya means emanation, so it is a body of emanation. It is a physical body that actually exists on earth as an emanation of the Dharmakaya. It can be a human form or a representation. So there are two types of Nirmanakaya Buddhas. The actual Nirmanakaya Buddha, like Gautama Buddha, and the Buddhas represented by books, statues, and images. It's very moving to know that 2600 years ago, a person called Siddhartha became the Buddha. He actually did that, and he made an enormous impact and impression on people. So enormous, that we still continue to follow his way and share his ideas. It is very powerful that somebody actually achieved enlightenment, and went so far as to proclaim it, to teach it, and to share his life with his students from the time of his enlightenment until his death when he was over 80 years old. Siddhartha showed us how to behave and how to handle ourselves with other people. He showed us that enlightenment is not a myth or a concept, but something actually took place. And from that time onward, successive people have done the same thing. They have followed the same path and attained enlightenment. It is necessary to identify with that particular living situation, to see that it is real. You can visit Bodhgaya and see the tree that the Buddha sat under when he attained enlightenment, and you can visit where he gave his first sermon. 
They are very inspiring places. It is very powerful and important to identify with the historical Buddhas, the one who actually lived and walked on earth. This is not a Superman story. It is the story of someone who lived where we do, on this earth. That person took a particular journey and we are trying to follow that example. His impact has gone on continuously for 2600 years and it is getting stronger, said forgiveness. And as for the three kayas as individual experience, said Mr. Kismet, the three kaya principle is based on body, speech, and mind of an ordinary person. Simultaneously, you have the Dharmakaya version of yourself, the Sambhokaya version of yourself, and the Nirmanakaya version of yourself. You can also look at an element such as water in terms of the three kaya principle. Basic water is the Dharmakaya. Its wetness is like the Sambhokaya, and the fulfilling of its functions, such as the quenching, thirst, and irrigation, is like the Nirmanakaya. So you can apply the three kayas as a way of looking at one body from three different perspectives. The Dharmakaya is your non-physical manifestation. You have non-physical aspects of yourself that others cannot see or communicate with. The basic state of being is ungraspable, but you know that it is within yourself and everybody else. You also possess a semi-graspable state of being, or Sambhukaya, which is the communication between your non-manifested and manifested levels. The semi-graspable state is symbolized by speech, but it includes all forms of communication, such as physical gestures, facial expressions, and how you present yourself in all kinds of ways. Then there's the Nirmanakaya, which means that you actually have a body. Even if you are a great teacher or a Buddha, you still have a body, and that body behaves more or less the same as other people's bodies. The necessities of eating, going to the bathroom, wearing clothes, and combing your hair are basically the same as anybody else's. So the three kayas are the subtle world, the direct world, and that which goes back and forth between the subtle and the direct worlds in order to survive on earth, said Mr. Kismet. That brings us to non-attainment, said forgiveness. The eleventh Bhumi is the land of non-attainment. You do not have any paramitas to practice, and you are not concerned with the other shore or this shore at all. This particular Bhumi no longer has a reference point of a journey. On the path of no more learning, the Eightfold Path is also the form of non-attainment. To understand the idea of non-attainment, you need to get a feeling for the near purposelessness of this state of being, as opposed to the purposefulness of the Bodhisattva. The Dharmas of non-attainment, the Nirmanakaya Buddha of the 11th Bhumi, the new Buddhas, attain what are called the 10 Dharmas of non-attainment. These Dharmas are largely based on the three principles of discipline, meditation, and knowledge, and on the Eightfold Path. In terms of discipline, right speech becomes the speech of non-attainment, right action becomes the action of non-attainment, and right livelihood becomes the livelihood of non-attainment. In the area of meditation, right mindfulness becomes the mindfulness of non-attainment, and the meditative absorption becomes the samadhi of non-attainment. At the level of knowledge, or prajna, right view becomes non-attainment view, right understanding becomes non-attainment understanding, and right effort becomes non-attainment effort. Those are the first eight dharmas of non-attainment. The ninth dharma falls outside the principles of discipline, 
meditation, and knowledge. It is the state of complete liberation, which is a pathless state. You are actually being liberated without bondage or binding factors related with your discipline, your learning, or your notion of saving sentient beings. The tenth dharma is perfect wisdom or jnana. It is a state of hundreds of millions of awareness and interests and sense perceptions. You experience life with great interest, completely exposed and unchallenged, with no prohibitions. It is as if hundreds of yanas spring out like the rays of the sun, touching every aspect of the physical world. But at the same time, that multiplicity of bodhisattva experiences has a feeling of oneness. There is a sense of complete energy, power, and understanding. You are no longer threatened, and you no longer have to keep a record of those millions of experiences. It is like a hundred bowls of water reflecting one moon. It is like the sun, which has no desire to shine on every flower and every bit of greenery, yet the greenery and flower still receive the sun's rays. On one hand, you could say the sun is keeping a good record of its projections. On the other, the sun is completely careless. It does not care about anything at all, but simply by being the sun, the brilliance of the sun shines. It becomes part of spontaneity, said forgiveness. And this brings us back to the beginning, said Mr. Kismet. The ten dharmas of non-attainment are inspired by the complete understanding of the Four Noble Truths. It all starts with the truth of suffering. Everything else follows. The awful confusion and chaos and uncertainty and panic and occasional hopes that something might be happening or something might not be happening. The minute you get back to this point, there is not much struggle. Even though it is the 11th Bhumi, it is the same you experiencing reality. You do not see a green world or a blue world, but you see a black and white world. Suffering is seen as reality, as truth. On the 11th Bhumi, the Four Noble Truths are not just truths in terms of ethical understanding and discipline, but they become wisdom, or yana. You experience their absolute truth. You have actually understood, at last, what you begin with as a student on the path of accumulation. You have made a complete circle, but in the case you have done it with more understanding. Previously, you were just tossed and challenged by the consequences of the truth, rather than understood it as yana, or higher truth. That process is very important. It makes the whole thing very real. In the end, you have not bypassed anything but you are returning to the origin, to the source of your original inspiration at the level of the first path. Tantric scriptures say that you might feel enormously resentful that the journey was a complete put-on, a sort of pacifier. Nevertheless, you did make the journey, and you did get somewhere. On the 11th Bhumi, you are not taking the journey anymore, but you have a very definite memory of it. It feels somewhat different, but that difference is not based on attaining a new state of being. Although you have come back to where you began, the memory of your journey makes it somewhat different. As an example, a teacher who escaped Tibet from the communists has a memory, but it is a very impressionable memory. He was able to get out of Tibet and just be himself once more, which he was anyway, but he could not be himself if he did not escape. The attainment of enlightenment means joining your world completely and letting go of any reservations. Usually we don't want to join the rest of the world. We want to maintain ourselves as individuals, so we call the world outside bad, 
or bad influences upon us, we never join our world properly, completely, thoroughly, and fully. It is like the story of the king who heard a prophecy that a rain was going to fall on his country that would cause everyone to go mad. So he saved up his own reservoir of fresh water. At some point, all the inhabitants of his country became mad while he continued to be sane. But eventually, he decided to drink the water of madness with them. The 11th Bhumi is considered to be the first level of the Nirmanakaya Buddhahood. You are wholeheartedly willing to join the world. In turn, instead of the confused world that you used to see, you begin to see a complete world, a sane world. You can communicate with confused people, who are also very complete people from your enlightened point of view. On the 11th Bhumi, having gone through all the other Bhumis, the Bodhisattva, or guardian, has become a universal monarch. You have achieved all pervasive awareness, as if you are holding all four directions at once. The completely radiant and luminous path of this particular Bhumi is backless. There are no hidden corners, so you see in all directions simultaneously. It has no front, because there is no manipulation of perception. Whatever you see is seen as the working base for dealing with the phenomenal world. It is all pervasive enlightenment without direction, said Mr. Kismet. And with that, there was silence. Well, what are you waiting for? Mr. Kismet said. I looked at him, and he had a twinkle in his left eye. What do you want me to do? I just died. Oh, come on. Death is just an opening into Samadhi. Let's go find you a new body, said Mr. Kismet.